Hello, everyone. My name is Jonathan Cooper, and I'd like to welcome you to Jonathan's Bookshelf Presents Black Kings Read. Black Kings Read is a literary weekly podcast show with book discussions, author reviews, book reviews, and issues in literacy with an African-American point of view. The mission of Black Kings Read is to change the paradigm of illiteracy within the African-American male community. No longer accepting the status quo, if you want to hide money from a Black man, put it in a book. We encourage all Black men to join our book discussions. We appreciate the literary community at large for their support. Now, the reason why I started this is because I've always wanted to do a... Um, book um, blog, you know, reviewing books and what books that I would recommend for people to read and also my thoughts on them. Well, after doing that for a while, I've decided to go ahead and start a podcast. And I wasn't too sure about the format or how I would go about it. So I just went ahead and did it. Now, the reason why I'm starting now is because today is the last, is actually this day is significant. There's two things going on. This is the last month of September. September is National Literacy Month. And also today is National International Podcast Day. So let's see, September 30th, 2018 is officially the start of the Black Kings Read podcast. Now, moving forward, you will hear from different um you're here from different people. I do have a guest with me tonight about a book that we're going to be discussing, and you'll be hearing, you'll be getting at least weekly um, shows from different points of views, black male points of views. And I'll bring on different guests. Hopefully, we'll bring on author interviews, and so we can both go this podcast together. Um, like I said, this is my first podcast. I've never done a podcast ever. I've been a guest like one time a few years ago. But other than that, this is my first official podcast. So just hanging with me. I swear this will get better and better and better. So with that being said, let's go into our first podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Black Kings Read. Today is September 30th, 2018. It is the last day for National Literacy Month, and it's also International Podcast Day. So this day is very important, as it is, like I said, the inaugural episode for Black Kings Read. On today's episode, we'll be discussing Thomas Sewell's Black Redneck and White Liberals. Uh, we'll be discussing chapter, chapter one through three with my good friend, Amir Abner. We are both graduates from Cheney University, the first HBCU. Um, we both graduated in 2015. Um, a little bit about myself. I have a degree in business administration with honors. Also, at the end of the podcast, I'll be sharing with you a book that I'm actually taking off my top 25 list. The book that I'm taking off my list as one of the top 25 books that I personally love is Come On People by Bill Cosby. At the end of the podcast, I'm going to tell you why I'm taking this book off my list. And it's not for the reasons that you think that I'm taking it 
off the list, but for a wholly, totally different reason. Solely, totally different reason, excuse me. So with that being said, we're going to go straight into the discussion with Thomas Sewell's Black, Rednecks, and White Liberals. Greetings, everyone. This is Jonathan Cooper with Black, King, Black Kings Read. And today we're going to be discussing the book Black, Rednecks, and White Liberals by Thomas Sewell. And I have today with my good friend and classmate from Cheney University, Amir, Ab Amir <laughs> Abner. Go ahead, Amir. How you doing? Um, yeah, so I'm, my name's Amir. Um, graduated from Cheney University with an undergraduate degree in uh, political science. Uh, after Cheney University, I moved to San Francisco to get my graduate degree at the University of San Francisco studying urban affairs, um, which more was a concentration of public policy and city development. Uh, so that's a little bit about me and my educational background. Awesome. Now, before we started, Amir, I asked you, I had a list of books that, actually the way that I approach you is because you, there's a bunch of books that you are currently reading that I also want to read. Then there's books that, that I've read that um, you haven't read as, as of yet, but there's one book that you mentioned stood out to me, um, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Tell me, why did you select this book? All right. Um... Part of the reason why I selected the book was because uh, during my graduate studies, um, as soon as I arrived to San Francisco, I was wondering what happened to all the black people. So um, it was totally different from Philly, whereas though Philly is a, at one point, I don't think it's that much anymore because of gentrification, um, but Philly was a majority black city. And then coming to San Francisco where there was about 5% black people in the entire city, but it used to be a lot more. And I'm thinking, what the hell happened to all the black people, right? <laughs> so, um, during my dissertation, I decided to do my dissertation on the displacement of African-Americans in San Francisco. So upon gathering you know, articles and data and everything that I researched, there were some underlying themes that I was finding about the black population in San Francisco. And it was the fact that the natives of San Francisco prior to the mass migration of the World War II era were totally different, you know, than those from the South and what was going on. And there was this big discussion between native blacks and blacks of the South that migrated into the Bay Area about their cultural behaviors that were totally different. So I kept reading throughout these books about these cultural differences. And then I somehow, um, it, it's funny. So actually I, I heard about Thomas Sowell through Tariq Nasheed. Now, Tariq, Tariq Nasheed, out of all people. Right, but here, here's the thing. <laughs> so Tariq Nasheed called Thomas Sowell a coon. Thomas Sowell a coon. So, I can see that, I can see that. I was like, okay, so, so why is he calling this guy a coon? Because my approach with everything is that I want to see both sides of the story. So I'm like, okay, let me look into some of his work and see if Tariq Nasheed is true about Thomas Sowell being a coon and, you know, a bootlicking Negro. <laughs> so I watched one of his videos on YouTube where he discussed the, um, the, the differences 
the black the black rednecks and the white liberals and that's how i found his book and his book was right on point with everything that i was reading and the other books about the the cultural changes in san francisco and that's how i found the book if you want to go into some of the stuff that's in the book we can of course yes we definitely are for those who don't know Tariq nasheed is a documentary doctor well, doctor, well, he's a doc, he does documentaries and he's also a lecturer. Um, he's known for his documentaries called Hidden Colors, which tells the story, the history of African-Americans from a black nationalist standpoint. Um, his documentaries, I don't really care for the first, the first installment, I didn't like it. The second one, I sort of liked, I think it was the third one I did like. But um, he's known in the Black Hotep circles, as we call them. Um, and for those who don't know what a Black Hotep is, I suggest you Google it. Um, but that's who Tariq Nasheed is. And he's known to call people the word coon if they don't necessarily um, align with his agenda. And actually, I had the, I had the unfortunate... <laughs> How can I say this? I, I, I've seen Tariq Nasheed. I actually paid $40 to see him when he came to Philly. The biggest mistake of my life, and I wish I got a refund. <laughs> um, he didn't do anything. He, he just, I, I, I would never do it again as long as I live. I had a, my ex-friend at the time. She persuaded me to go with her to see him, and I wish I never did that. Um, but, um, other, I mean, he, there, there are some... For his, for his series, there are some things you can take away and you can learn some things, but I would not take it as gospel truth. There are people who actually do, though. They swear his, his work is the Bible and they just believe anything this man says. And, and I tell people, you know, just find your own mind. Just like what Amir said that, hey, he, he heard the name, so he did the research to find out who this Tom Sewell is. Now, one thing that I've read in the book, or a few things I've read in the book, from what I got, especially with chapter one, is that he makes people from the South to be these backwards yokels that are uneducated, lazy, lazy, shiftless. And when they migrate up to the North, they bring a lot of that with them and they sort of demoralize the culture of, of the North. So like Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, that's what I kind of got from it. Am I correct about that or am I wrong? Uh, for the most part, um, I, I wouldn't say all of them because some of them did have education, mm. but whenever there's a bulk of, you know, of anything, there's going to be some bad apples in that mix. Right. right. So, um, and, and that's kind of like what happened in the Bay area, at least, and at least in some of the cities like Chicago and New York and stuff too. And then, um, he really talks about, and he actually breaks it down by religion, sexuality. Um, and there was one point that he made as far as entrepreneurship. Now we know that when it comes to African-American lynchings, there were most of the people that were lynched that are African-American in the South were business owners. And, right. he makes a, and he makes a point that it was not only black people, it, were, it was white people really that are being lynched that were also business owners. That was right. something that actually said, the, um, and I quote, the violence of which white southerners became most lastly notorious was lynching. Like other aspects of the redneck and cracker culture, 
and it become attributed to the race to race or slavery. In fact, however, most lynching victims in the Atabelum South were white. Um, that's something that I never knew. That I ahead. mean, yeah, I, it's probably because of the shared number of the population of like whites that were there at the time. Black people were never the majority of like people in the country. Period. Um, even in the South, whereas though, you know, you might have one slave owner who has a hundred slaves and of course there's more African-Americans or Africans there at that point. But for the total share population, that was never really the case. And especially after the war ended. So this goes into another topic we might have to take another day is that uh, what a lot of people don't know about the reconstruction era was that there was a massive influx of Europeans that came here to undermine the wages of black folks in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that was a, another, that's another topic down the line. Right, right. It, in fact, when I was reading that, especially in chapter one, I was kind of confused on what time period he was talking about because he was talking about um, this in the South particular, he was talking about the, the, um, the Celtics, and we're not talking about the basketball team. Um, right. <laughs> and the um, the uh, people from the the UK immigrating into the mm-hmm. South, and mm-hmm. I was like, okay, what time period is he talking about? Because when I think of people immigrating coming from England, sorry, from Europe to the South, I think of the French going into Louisiana. This right. sounds like these people were immigrating to from New from New England to, excuse me, not in English, from the UK to like um, Alabama or Mississippi. So mm-hmm. yes, that's definitely something for another time that we can get into. But one thing that he talked about, and I was kind of confused about, well, two concepts he brought up, was he constantly used the word cracker and redneck. Mm-hmm. Is there, are they mutually exclusive? What did he mean when he used those terminologies? Oh, man. Um, I read the book a long time ago, uh, but um, I, I, I think he, he said he explained it in the book, though. He was saying that those words originate from the home countries of those who practice that behavior. I forget which ones come from that certain region, but that's how they got those names. I it's apologize. Not- you are correct. He did. It's actually... Um, pride has yet, and I'm quoting from page 12, pride has yet another side to it among the definitions of a cracker in the Oxford Dictionary, Oxford Dictionary is a Bradworth, one who talks trash, in today's vernacular, a wisecracker. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. I apologize. You're right. I, I must have missed that. I, I, I am so sorry. So, yes, that's what he means when he uses the term cracker. And then when, and one thing that he did that... If we go to chapter, oh yes, chapter back to chapter one. One thing that he talks about, and this I see it right now in our present day when it comes to white liberals. He brings up the argument that is basically the white liberals who are the are the ones who are stopping the progress of African Americans. Am I correct about that? Absolutely. Okay, and then and I and the reason why I say I see that. Presently, I was just listening to a podcast where the guy was talking about how these white liberal, the white liberal media will take issues going on in African-American communities like, like uh, such as police brutality 
and they mm -hmm. will create videos, they'll monetize off the videos, they'll make money off those videos, but they won't help out Black Lives Matter. They won't be a part of any type of progressive agenda or lawmaking decisions to help forward and to help stop these atrocities. But they will make money talking about the issue. They will go to seminars. They, they will do everything that they can to, to, to talk about it, but they won't do anything cohesive to stop the issue. And go ahead. Correct. Um... So that's another thing, right? So being a black person and living in the quote unquote most progressive city in America, I've seen firsthand what it's done to black people. Um, then if you look at anywhere else in the country, if you look at a lot of the cities that are, you know, so-called gentrifying, mm -hmm. who's moving into these sections of the cities? It is not the white conservative and the white redneck that's moving there, it's actually the white liberal. We and call then, them, I think in Philly they're, Philly other place to call um, hipsters. Yeah, yeah, they call them hipsters, but they're really white, <laughs> white liberals. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, it's like he's actually correct about that, and um, I don't, I don't want to put too much on my old employer, but um, I was working at this, this, um, I don't want to give it away, but a place that does a lot for the community, right? And I remember around the Charlottesville riot. You know, everyone in office was pretty outspoken. We need to fund, like, um, anti-hate groups and things like that. And I was like, the Charlottesville thing is just a blip in the map. Mm -hmm. so it's a time occurrence. Instead of focusing all your energy on reactionary stuff to this, there's some people that's in the hood that can't even eat. What are we doing for the people that's right here right now? And they're like, yeah, but... It's, it's crazy to racism. Like racism is always going to be here. You need to provide people with opportunities to lift themselves out. And that's where I really started seeing the stark contrast of like people that grew up in the community versus these white liberals that have never really grew up in a community and ever interacted with it on a deeper personal level. Now, there's a famous YouTuber that I used to watch. I no longer watch, but I might watch that person again who, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, who constantly pushes that we need government intervention um, right. to correct that. So how do you, think the, do you think the government plays a part in this too? I think, I think the government plays a great part in, in what's going on. So this is another book we might have to talk about down the line is uh, – What's the name? Let me just say it. The Color of Law. law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is on. That we, we're definitely going to do that. Color Law and also The Color of Money, but go ahead. Right. So I, I can speak on what's going on here in San Francisco, mm -hmm. mainly because, you know, for the last two to three years, all my research been policy level research on progressive policy. So what happens here is that the white liberals have been confusing Black people here with these policies that's supposed to be progressive. They say, okay, we need more inclusionary housing. Um, we need to do this program. And each time they put in something that's supposed to be progressive to help out the so-called the so poor people here, which is cold for black people, is that it actually pushes them out. And mm -hmm. from 2000 to, it's, I think it's even from 2000, 2010 or 2010 to currently, Black, the black population is the only population in the entire city that have gone backwards in median income. And so, so you know, that's also under a black president. But that's a whole nother issue we're not uh, going to be there. So we're <laughs> <going to be. laughs> 
Absolutely. <laughs> and in the case of Philadelphia, which also saw the decline is under a black president and also a black mayor, black fire chief, black black um, fire commissioner, no, um, police commissioner, and black district attorney who's now in jail. But that's a whole other issue. We're not going to get into that. But <laughs> but um, and also I was in this chapter going to chapter two. Are Jews genetic? And that's a that's a that's a that's the discussion I've heard. And he doesn't only talk about Jews; he talks about Asians. Um, are they genetically inferior? And I mean, superior, not inferior. Blacks they say blacks are inferior, and that the Jews are superior. But the difference is, and I didn't get this from the book, is that these people, whether they're Jewish, Asian, and when I mean Asian, I mean East Asian they were not torn from their culture. They had, they can, they can relate back to their culture where African-Americans, descendants of African-American slaves were torn from their culture. What was his purpose in, in questioning or saying that they, if they are genetic? Right. So I, I think that was his pushback against those who like to use the whole, um, with the whole IQ thing, the state of blacks and things like that. I think he wants to attribute the lack of success for the better part of African Americans in the country as to some of our historical uh, issues that we face, right? So um, when he talks about the Jews in there, he's like, the Jews migrated to America, started up businesses, and made a whole bunch of money. It's because they come from the historical background from other countries where mm -hmm. they had and they set up already. Whereas though for Black folks, they didn't have anything. It's like they didn't have the... The, the, the skills to know how to shut up businesses all across the country, right? Well, we did, but it was taken away. It was taken away from us. Right. And when it did happen, though, when mm -hmm. black people actually practiced, they were successful. Yes, we were. And, and you know, it's funny, reading that, and I think it was a little bit in chapter one, reading that, it, it made it clear to me. The way he was explaining how the white Southerners were not as entrepreneurial, they were not, they didn't work as hard. And for a white person in the South to see other black, see the, the um, Black Wall Street in Durham, the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, to be surrounded by that is going to infer what I think somebody wrote about was called white rage, which actually we're seeing right now in the Kavanaugh hearings, um, this anger that white people will have. And it's like, okay, I see these people coming up, doing this and doing that. And then what happened was the obliteration of a lot of these um, black towns, black Wall Streets, either through government or in the case of Tulsa, people believe that the government had a hand in that too. So I saw that going hand in hand and I was like, okay, that light bulb went off in my head. Like I didn't know that. In fact, even in the movie um, Rosewood, you saw these white people who were, um, not as industrious as black people. And they looked at these black people like, who do you think you are? Right. And the moment and the opportunity they found to take them down, they did. Right, right. I mean, so, but this is, <laughs> yeah, maybe go to another discussion about black entrepreneurship. And this is the reason, like being out here in this progressive city, which I have a problem with is that Black people are historically capitalistic people, but with white liberals in control, they turned them to socialist people and then he fell. 
Hmm. Well, if you look at throughout history, whenever black people have done good for themselves, they have done good for themselves because they took on this capitalistic spirit. So for better or for worse, you have some people that acted as leeches by doing it. But for the most part, when black people want to do stuff on their own and succeed, they do it better than anybody else. Absolutely. The only thing that I would say to that is I see where you're coming from. But let, let me give you this little caveat. If black people had, because we know that 1% of the, um, the 1% controls like 99% of the wealth now, wealth, I think it is. Um, if black people had even 10% of that 1% of the wealth, we would see laws change instantly to make sure that black people did not socially or sorry, economically come up. So when people say, when black people say, well, we can just be as good as a Jeff Bezos or a um, Bill Gates, I'm like, but the laws would change instantly because now we saw with the last year of the um, tax bill being passed, that is, that's in favor of the 1% that if black people started to become more into the higher class, the laws would change to make sure that they would be taxed more and to bring them down. Go ahead. Uh, I, I think the tax bill is part of a bigger thing. Um, I, I think that's more so part of keeping the things afloat because we were headed towards another recession. I think that was something just to hold off on was eventually going to come to this recession because mm-hmm. um, there's going to be a, a, a to um, raise up the uh, the interest rates. And when that starts to happen, a lot of these organizations won't be able to borrow as much. So mm-hmm. you just get a tax rate, therefore they can buy back into the market. But yes. yeah, that, that's that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> No, that, that is a whole the discussion. The point I was making is just that if Black people ever felt the need to compete with the white capitalists, there, there would be things in place to stop that. I don't know. Because, I, mm-hmm. I, again, so when I was doing my research for this, um, I forget what year it was. It was even the 30s or 40s. Whereas, though, the, the wealth gap between Blacks and white wasn't really that large. Right. It's a new phenomenon. So, and, and I know that a lot of people like to think that we've always been super behind the curve when it comes to like black income and white income, but it's really not true. A lot of this didn't start happening until like the 1960s and 70s. So there was only about a $2,000 difference in income gap between blacks and whites in like the 50s and 60s. And then we get like the welfare state and then it's like exploded. So the, and you can't tell me that America is more racist now than it was before when we actually had laws for racism. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Yeah, that is something that, because it's funny because when it comes to, in chapter two, when he talks about genetics, one of the reasons why, actually, I don't start my grad program until January, but one of the things that I wrote in my personal statement is that I wanted to explore you know, why is it that black people constantly, we consume, we vote, and we work against our own interests. We will, and this actually came about in the um, primary, in 2016 primary, the Democratic primary. Um, I'm not going to get too deep into that, but after I realized that, okay, there are black people who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton, even though that's probably the worst person that you could vote for as a black person. Why would you vote right. for that person? 
and and like I said, this is the primary, not the general. The general, that's a whole different issue, but this was the primary. And and I was like, what is going on? And then I see black people working for white people that they necessarily don't want to work for. And then they're and then when it comes to consuming, like they'll like Dr. Claude Anderson says, um, they will spend in African and African and Af, African, excuse me, I can hardly talk. In the African American community, the black dollar only circulates for about six hours. So I'm like, well, what's going on, black people? And that's one thing that I will be researching. But going to chapter three, the real history of slavery. One of the mm-hmm. things that maybe I missed, but I read this, I thought I got it, but I missed. He talks about slavery beyond Africans. He talks about, of course, when um, African slaves mm-hmm. were taken by Arabs, and then he talks about the history of slavery and all that. But he never talks about the difference between slavery in the past to to slavery to the post sorry to the um, transatlantic slave trade, which is shadow slavery. I didn't get that he put that concept in his book. Did he ever? I don't think he talked about that because there is a clear. He talked about it later in the book. I'm sorry. Yeah, he he goes back to it later in the book and goes a little bit deeper into that. Into I think chapter. it's like one of. The, yeah, it's like one of the last chapters. He goes into that a little bit more deeply. So he goes into child slavery, the difference between. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he definitely goes into that later, and it, and that's true. Basically, you're saying in there. I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about it now, but he was comparing the differences between chattel slavery and, you know, a lot of stuff that was going on in the Middle Eastern world of slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it makes me, um, it makes me kind of angry thinking about some of the stuff that, you know, I hear people talk about today right. regarding slavery, because I'm like, um, we still have slavery in Africa. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yes that those Africans that's in the, the quote unquote Africans, they're not really Africans because Africa got conquered by Middle Easterns. So what we see in Egypt and Morocco and Libya and all those, those are not Africans. Those are Syrians and, you know, Iraqians people that's over there in that land. And then they're subjugating the Nubians to slavery. So, and even recently my sister went to Egypt and there's a whole another town of Egypt in the outskirts that's full of the real Africans there, and they're all living in poverty. So the slavery that's in Africa is still present, even though we give America slavery so much flat. Just out of curiosity, these Egyptians that live in poverty, these wouldn't happen to be the quote-unquote dark-skinned African. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the dark-skinned one. The the true African. And this. Is, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's it's such an international thing. It's in Cuba, it's in Brazil, it's in any any country where there are predominantly African Americans, you will see you won't even in Australia, the dark skinned Aborigines. You don't see right. them. They're, they're living in poverty, they're living in um no man's land, but what you'll see is the white or the lighter version of the of the people sometimes they're not even right. native. It, wow right. wow mm-hmm. and actually he, yeah. oh he did bring that up i'm sorry he did bring that up too go ahead go ahead amir yeah he was he was absolutely right about that um and it's just that 
and I believe this is part of progressive politics is where as though you highlight so much of the atrocities that happen to black people and associated with slavery, but we don't have anything to compare it against, right? So mm-hmm. we automatically assume that American slavery was the worst slavery in the entire world when it actually really wasn't. And as we know, you know, from being from HBCU, we get a little bar di- in- intel about mm-hmm. slavery is that most of the slaves weren't even brought to America. Right. So right. if most of the slaves mm-hmm. were really brought to America and where they were going, we don't ever think about, well, when they went to this other place, how were they treated? Exactly. Yeah, he goes into that in his book. Exactly. And one thing, and we we brought up Tariq Nasheed, he actually talks about him and um, Renaka Rashidi, who's actually just in Chicago, but um, he also brings up Africans in in, um, Australia in the way that they were treated, and that was nothing close to the slaves that were what what the way that they were treated african americans were treated that way but not during slavery and i don't yeah. want i don't want to get too graphic into how they were treated but to hear the way when they conquered the the colonizers when they conquered um australia and the way they treated the natives i was like that's that's abhorrent and mm-hmm. one thing and and from especially chapter one, I wasn't getting the feeling that he was talking a lot about white supremacy. He was more trying to say black Southerners are not, they're not equivalent to black people, but they sort of fight the same fight because he says that, you know, that white people in the North would not hire somebody who moved from the, from the South, moved from the South to the North who had a Southern accent that people, mm-hmm. when they migrated, they were, con- and they migrated from the South, you could tell that they were from the South, that they they were labeled as stereotypically not intelligent. They wouldn't hire them. Mm-hmm. And um, and they would, and the Southerners that m- migrated would quote unquote assimilate. So they would do mm-hmm. things to change their accent, the way they talk, their words. Mm-hmm. So they would, so they would um, be integrated into the society, to larger, to yeah. the main society. Go ahead. Right. I mean, and that's and that's true, right? Um, just based on the fact that even now, black people, to an extent, code switch. Whereas though, black people go into an office and you know talk a totally different way compared to when they back home kicking with the homies. It's like it's mm-hmm. totally different. But, and, and that's what a lot of white Southerners did at a certain point in time. When they did go to the North, they just behaved differently. And, mm-hmm. they, and they started over a period of time that it just became, you know, a part of their everyday fabric. Whereas though, black folks held on to the, to the Bama culture when they brought it up North. They didn't change and assimilate to what was the, the practices and the values up North. So that's why the black people that was already in these industrial cities has so much of a conflict with the white southern, uh, with the white, with the black southerners that came up into the north. And when I, when I tell people about this, they try to make it seem like, like, oh man, that, that sounds bad that they didn't want to be like them. I'm like, it just is what it is. And it got to a point where the black folks here, and, and it's a book, um, it's uh, Black San Francisco, is by Albert Broussard, where he talks about this where a lot of the black folks here were like, 
I don't know what the hell is going on in my community, but ever since these black Southern came here, it, it went totally downhill. And it's because, and, and they gave some vivid description. They were like, people started fighting in the street. They started chewing tobacco and spinning it out on the streets. Uh, the prostitution went crazy and all this other stuff. And they said they didn't have that before the black Southerners arrived. But when you say that, it sounds like a terrible thing, but if it's the truth, then it's the truth. How many, and actually I'm looking for in the book because he said the same thing. The example he gave, and I believe he was talking about San Francisco specifically about eating on the, um, eating on the, on the bus, um, things right. just, they, they, nor they normally didn't do. And right. I think it's funny because how many times there's actually a movie, it was called, I think it was called Good Fences with Danny Glover and, I might be wrong about this, I might be wrong about the name of the movie, but it was with Danny Glover and Whoopi Goldberg. It was this upper class black family that lived in this white neighborhood and, you know, they were chilling, doing their thing, you know, good neighbors. Um, their neighbor, they have a new neighbor who moves in who's black, it's played by Monique. Um, and they just, and Monique's, her character, she, hit the, she hits the lottery. And of course, what happens when you hit the lottery, you go out and you live out in the suburbs somewhere. So she goes from mm -hmm. living in the hood to living down in the suburbs, and she takes the quote-unquote element with her. So then the, mm -hmm. the, the as they say, there goes in the neighborhood. Um, right. We even see it now today. I mean, even though I live in Chicago, I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. Right. Um, the neighborhood I live in, most of the people, it's like, I would say it's the equivalent of living in, uh, I can't say East Mount area because I don't have that many black neighbors. But basically, most of the people that live out here either work for the government, work for the, the police department, because I'm like on the borderline of the suburbs. But we noticed that yeah. whenever black people like i would love to live in a, an upper class black neighborhood but right. those are far few in between and right. because we know that usually when black people move in they usually bring whatever elements that they had in the past and not saying that's necessarily a bad thing but that's what happens am i wrong right no absolutely um and so i would honestly say one of one of the hottest takes that i have and it's probably, I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this, but I want somebody to prove me wrong on this. Is that I, I really think a lot of this exclusionary zoning actually started because of the mass influx of Black Southerners into these cities. Because you didn't really get the first um, major zoning law until like 1916. And this was during the first Industrial Revolution as, as far as Black people into like Chicago. So then you get the second wave until like the 1950s. 1930s and 40s because of World War II. And this is when you start really seeing the zoning laws start to really pop off and they start to downzone. So when you downzone is that you make the land so limited that there's only higher income people. So I use San Francisco as a, a lot of the, the examples, but in San Francisco, blacks and whites lived in the same neighborhood until World War II. So in here, there was no um, like redlining going on in San Francisco. The true redlining that happened in San Francisco was actually between the whites and the Chinese. They were the, the, 
the avid enemies of each other until the black population increased. And they shifted towards their hate, towards the Chinese and the Asians and to the blacks because of the culture and the practices of the mass influx of black people that moved here. And I'm trying to look for it. I, I, I have these little stickers that I put in there to remind myself, but actually in his book, he does say that at one point in time in the 1920s, there was integration. There, there was. <laughs> and I was shocked. I'm like, I always thought, cause I am from, even though I live in Chicago and I lived in Philly for the past uh, 15 years, I'm from Delaware and there's a Southern Delaware and there's a Northern Delaware. And two different, and it's just like the North is from the South, Northern Delaware and Southern Delaware is just the same. And I went to an integrated high school. My, actually my, well, come to think about it, my grandparents didn't, but in the North, they were integrated. So in the North, it was integrated. They talk about, we had this discussion on Facebook years ago about Oberlin College and Amherst College, these colleges in the North that admitted black people in the South, and although I don't think he talked, I don't think he's, he went there yet. He does talk about Booker T. Washington, but he doesn't talk about HBCUs as a whole. And then mm -hmm. come to think of it, there are not that many HBCUs in the North. It was the one that we went to, Cheney, Delaware State. I mean, Morgan's in Baltimore, but I don't know if you consider, Baltimore was considered the South. So it's like only a handful of HBCUs in the North. The rest of them are in the South. Right. Because a lot of black folks that did go to college actually went to colleges at PWIs. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the, the Southern, it, so, and he kind of spot on about this too, right? Is that a lot of the HBCUs in the South, they weren't really up to par with the, the, the PWIs that were up in the North where the elite black people went that had like the best education. For so they were more like. For African-American experience, who did you take? At Cheney. I forget, man. Um, was it Muhammad or Gavin? I probably took Gavin for it. Okay, I have Muhammad. Never mind. Because <laughs> he made us read a book about Booker T. Washington, and we both know that Booker T. Washington, when he started Tuskegee, it was his thing was assimilation. And assimilation not in Black people being entrepreneurs. Black people just being um, farm, farm hands, industrial, just just to make it into white society. I, I don't know, Booker T. So the more that I researched, the more I appreciated Booker T. Right, because mm -hmm. I think he was actually spot on about a lot of stuff. Was because he his whole approach was, why are we talking about Mozart when we can't even you know build our own land? So he was like, his whole approach was, let's get some basic survival skills before we started talking about the arts and sciences. He said Mozart. Yeah, so it's just for example, his whole thing was, okay. why are we learning about poetry and Mozart and all these abstract things, and we don't even know the basic survivals of this land? So he mm -hmm. was like, the first thing we do is learn how to do for ourselves, and then mm -hmm. we can get into all the extravagant things. Okay, I see what you're saying. Now, the reason why I said Mozart, because there was actually a composer, I can't think of his name right now, who was a rival of Beethoven. Because, you know, oh. African Africans, we originate a lot of things. In fact, I just did a paper on calculus in Europe, and we started a lot of the math concepts. So, um, 
you know, it's, you don't read that about that in history book. You hear about um, everyone else, Sir Isaac, Sir Isaac Newton. Um, when actually, honestly, gravity first originated, the concept of gravity first originated actually in India. But um, wrapping up here, um, one more thing I like to bring up, especially when he talks about uh, slavery. One thing that he said that was kind of interesting, he said, there is no ev evidence according to a scholarly study that slavery came under serious attack in any part of the world before the 18th century. That is when it first came under attack in Europe. Right. So Europe actually banned slavery before the United States did it. Which is correct. Um, which because I think they banned it in the early 1800s. I think it was right. 1803, if I'm not mistaken. I know, I know the British banned it in 1803. I only know that because I remember watching um, the Book of Negroes, which I know is fictional, but it took a lot of right. historical context from it because actually one book. Have you read Barracoon yet? No, I know you're talking about the um, Zena, Yeah, I haven't read it yet. That's also going to be on the list. Okay, Amir, um, tell everyone where they can find you and how they can get a hold of you if they want to. If you want them to get a hold of you, go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, before, before, before I tell them that, sure. let's, let's go back to the slavery in the British, right? Sure. So this is how I can predict a lot about what's going to happen in the U.S. is that still until this day, the U.S. operates as like the son or daughter of, you know, the whole U.K. and British thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's because they were the first to, to get rid of slavery, right? And then we got rid of slavery. They were the first to go into this industrial revolution and then we got into the industrial revolution. Then the whole whole Brexit thing that happened over there, that was a clear sign for me was that Trump was going to win the presidency because his whole approach was more of a nationalistic tone. So and that's, mm -hmm. and that's right, so Europe and, go sorry, sorry, go ahead. Oh okay. But yeah, so when I when I seen it, I was like, okay, um so I see where we're going here with this. We're we're going to a more nationalistic tone now. So whatever happens over there is that it's going to have a direct impact on the states. So if you want to see anything structurally about America, is to watch closely what happens in the UK. But um, so but yeah, being optimistic, mm -hmm. I, I also see what's going on in in the UK, and what I'm looking at right now is Jeremy Corbyn. So right. <laughs> so. Because I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier, but what I said was, it was I went to go see Fahrenheit 11.9 by Michael Moore, and he said the same exact thing. He said when he saw what happened with Brexit, he knew that the odds of Donald Trump winning the presidency was going to happen. And he was one of the few voices that were saying, man, the alarms, this man's going to be the president when everyone thought it was a joke. For those who haven't seen the movie, I suggest you see the movie because it's actually kind of funny. It's not about Trump the whole time. It is about, I mean, for those who are into politics, to, to us, it's like a duh, we knew. But for those who didn't know, then right. you'll be enlightened. But the way he did it in the beginning, in the beginning scene, just to give a little caveat, he talks about, he shows the 
when Hillary was in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center and how everyone was celebrating and cheering and over 11, 12, 17 blocks down at Trump's campaign, it was like doom and gloom. It was just sad. And all of a sudden there was a switch. It's actually kind of funny how, he's, how he does it because anybody who's seen Michael Moore movies knows that he's a master of that. But I'm sorry, not to get off point, but um, you're absolutely right. Um, when we look at what's going on in the UK, and we see it start to image off of what we're doing. That that's something, I'm, especially immigration. That's one too. Right. They were doing the um, deport, not even the deportation, but the whole either assimilate to our society or get out. And right. we're starting to see that now. Like speak American. What does that mean? I don't know. But um, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. right about that. And that's I never even thought about that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um. There's there's definitely a lot more to talk about with that stuff. So. Um. Mm-hmm. But maybe maybe we can get into that another day about like books about labor. So. Yes. Absolutely. Um, few few of my favorite books about labor was uh, when work disappears. Um. There's another book that predicted a, a whole Clinton backlash. It was um. Oh my God, I can't remember the name of this book. Um, there was another book that was written. I remember the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan quoting it and I actually used it in my paper. I forgot what it was called. It was basically basically about technology replacing black labor. Uh, I don't, so my thing with technology is that since I, I actually work in tech now, right. but mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that it's going to displace people as much as they think that it will. So, yeah, I, I think that's way farther down the line. I don't think, I think people had this perception about like artificial intelligence and how ready it is, but it's not that ready. Yet. It's a long way to go. I agree. So, Mayor, go ahead and tell them where they can find you at. And actually, where they can be. Are you still writing for Medium? I haven't written in a while, but I, I started to, to write on something. I was a few games, so I tried. Um, but the next one, when I do release it, it's going to be called uh, Black Pain is Profit. I can't wait to read that. I love the one you did on the um, the intellectuals. That was spot on. So um, uh, so once again, tell them where you, they can find you at. And if they, if you want to. Have yeah, a- I mainly, yeah, I mainly can be found on. I'll just give out my Twitter handle. That's where you can read a lot of my uh, my, my thoughts. Instagram, not so much as mainly as pictures and stuff like that. But with me, you can. So, um, actually, let me repeat that again. You you came out. Tell them where they can find you again. I'm sorry. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Money Mirweather. So, money and then M I R and then weather, like the weather. Awesome. Okay. Well, once again, thank you for your input. And once again, this is just part one of red, uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Um, part two will be coming out soon. All right. All right. Hello, everyone. 
and welcome back to Black Kings Read. I really hope that you are enjoying the show thus far. This is my first show, so I am nervous like I don't know what, but thanks again for hanging in there. I hope you really enjoyed the discussion I had with Amir. And once again, he left his information, so please check him out when you get a chance. Like I said, in a few days and probably most likely next week, the rest of the book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals, we will be discussing chapter four through six. So if you want to follow along with us, um, go ahead and get the book, get it from your local library, get it off of Amazon, whatever you do. Just if you want to go ahead and join us in that discussion, once again, is white, I keep on getting mixed up because I'm so used to saying white rednecks. It's black rednecks and white liberals by Thomas Sewell. Now back to what I said in the beginning of the podcast. Um, the reason why I am taking Come On People by Bill Cosby and Alvin Poisset, I forgot, it was actually co-author, so it's um, Bill Cosby and Dr. Alvin um, Poisset. The reason why I'm taking this book off of my top 25 list isn't because of you know the allegations that he was actually found guilty of with Andrew Constein, or that he is now serving his three to 10 year sentence um, in Pennsylvania. It's actually the book itself. At the time I read this book, I wasn't, I mean, I'm a pretty fairly educated man, but at that time I wasn't too educated when it comes to the issues in the African-American community. So when I read this book, to me, it made sense. The book basically is holding African-Americans solely responsible for all the things that they are going through at that time. And this is around 2006, 2000, 2007. This book was published in 2007. So when I read the book, I was like, yes, Black people, we need to get together. We need, And actually, the full title of the book is Come On People, On the Path from Victims to Victors. Now, do not get me wrong. I do believe in accountability. I do believe in responsibility. I definitely believe in those. But to solely, going through the book, now that I was thinking about it later on in life, the book does not address systemic racism, does not address systemic oppression, does not address, now, although we now see it on social media and on TV, police brutality, that's nothing new. That's been going on out through years, way before it's been filmed. I, I forgot who said it. It's, it's not that it's not that police brutality is something new. It's just it's now it's now being filmed. So to say that the reason why black people are in, in the position that they're in because they choose to be is totally irresponsible. Now, there was a book that was written by um, by Dr. Michael Eric Dyson called Is Bill Cosby Right? I haven't read that book as of yet. I have my qualms with uh, Dr. Eric Michael Dyson, um, not necessarily with his writing, but with his politics. But I do plan on reading that book because I understand, if I'm not mistaken, from what I've heard, he really addresses... Look, you can't address the issues in the African-American community without addressing 
the underlying issues with it. As far as, um, like I said, police brutality, redlining, um, inequality, the things that lead or contribute to the problems in the African, in the black community. So this book, and well, one of the reasons why Bill Cosby fell off with the black communities because he was pointing at the black community and saying, look, pull up your pants, assimilate, get right, and you'll do fine. And it's like, he went on this crusade to actually do this and he fell out with a lot of black people. And at the time, I, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open-minded. So I'm like, at the time of this book, I'm like, he's right. Like we need to get it together. And then after reading a lot of books, one of them being The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, it helped me to open my eyes to systemic racism. It's, and for The New Jim Crow, it was talking about the mass incarceration system. So with all that being said, I have to take this book off my list. I don't recommend Come On People by Bill Cosby. Um, I still have the book. Actually, the book is sitting right here in front of me. And I thought to myself, well, maybe there were some things that I missed. Maybe maybe he did address it, but um, I just missed it. And then going through the chapters, um, the chapters actually, see, there are eight chapters in this book. And one thing he does is he breaks it down into different parts in each chapter. So give an example, like chapter three is we all start out as children and then he breaks it down and says, okay, this is the next part is it starts, it all starts with choice. Some good ways to say, welcome to the world. Let's not forget the mother. Good ideas on making the baby feel at home. Key concepts and bring it up, baby. So going through this, there's nothing about the history of what black people had to endure or enduring. Nothing about the politics that that are leading up to inequality, um, to racism. None of that. Just basically, look, it's the this book was written to appease the black upper and middle class. I think I, I think somebody said this before. Somebody has said this before. Um, this was, book was created so black upper class and middle class people could feel like that they were superior to black um, lower class or black people that are in poverty. And now that I have the data to back up what's going on with black people as far as our income, as far as our um, discrimination, I can no longer put this book on my list. So this book is being, is right now is being taken off my list and it will be replaced by another book that I will talk about next week. So if you want to know what book I replaced Come On People by Bill Cosby with, tune in for the next podcast and I will definitely share that with you. Other than that, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I am... I am very, very, very nervous, but for some reason I feel more relaxed, but trust and believe, like I said, this is going to get better and better and better. Okay. Thanks so much. Y'all take care. Have a great night.